With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 59th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues. And I also love to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help you to better protect your own privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Pop, Pod Toppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And certainly, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. And then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. And I welcome today a large number of new listeners just in this past week, coming in from Sweden, Germany, and Russia, which are all on my bucket list to visit. And I had a lot more coming in from Colombia. And I actually visited Colombia a few years ago when I gave a keynote there in Bogota at a security conference. And I look forward to going back to Colombia again. It's such a a beautiful country you have there. And while I typically do not have more than one cup of coffee in the morning each day, I simply could not get enough of the most delicious coffee I ever tasted while I was in Colombia. And to the rest of my listeners in many, many more other locations, thank you all for tuning in. If you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my show, just please also get in touch. And if you need help with information security or privacy, let me know. I just provided some help as an expert witness in a very interesting privacy case. And I I really love those types of projects. And please also keep all your feedback and questions coming in. I welcome them all. Now, Something I've mentioned before, but I want to mention again, I'm part of the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST for short. I'm part of the NIST team currently creating the NIST Privacy Framework, and uh, we want to get as much feedback from as many industries and the general public and countries and perspectives as possible. So please go to nist.gov forward slash privacy hyphen framework. And there you'll see a lot more information and you'll be able to provide feedback on the many different documents and information provided there about this project. The next, the next NIST 
Privacy Framework Workshop is May 13 to 14, and it's going to be in Atlanta, Georgia at Georgia Tech. And you can sign up for that workshop at the privacy-framework section of the NIST.gov site also. Now, my April Privacy Professor Tips message was published on March 29th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. I've been providing them free since 2007. And I do this because I really think it's important to increase the general awareness of information security and privacy issues. And I also want to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send out to their employees. I know how hard that is to get it in your budget to send those types of such important reminders. So please use these to help your own organization out with keeping that awareness as high as possible. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Now, for my tip this week, And this is actually coming from my April tips message. When was the last time you made a backup of your data? Hmm? Well, backups are like digital antibiotics, if you will. And they can defend against the negative impacts of ransomware. Ransomware attacks are getting worse and worse and more frequent. And it's more likely a question of when, not if, you're going to be approached by an attacker who at least claims to have encrypted your data and insists on you paying them often large amounts of money to release that data back to you. So one of your best weapons against these cyber criminals is making frequent, consistent, regimented backups. It's an absolute must for not only mitigating ransomware risks, but for many other good reasons as well. Have you performed a full backup of your important files lately, like in the last month or within the last week if you've been doing financials or income taxes? If you're unsure what to back up, ask yourself this. If I lost this forever, would I be heartbroken or would I be in legal or contractual trouble? Well, if the answer is yes to either of those, back it up. And this would be your photos, your videos, tax data, emails, anything that has emotional or practical or legal value, back it up. Installing an automatic solution that backs up for you is often the most dependable way to make sure you stay on top of this. But if if that's not right for you, just set a calendar reminder to make them yourself. And, you know, I do it this way, and, and it works like a charm. And if you have the means, back up to an external hard drive, something else I do. It's very important to do this to keep it away from all your other more daily and ongoing used files. And very importantly, remember to disconnect 
your backup drive from your computer network when you are not actively doing a backup. You don't want ransomware creeps finding their way into your backup simply because you forgot to disconnect the backup drive. By the way, here's kind of a fun little fact for you. March 31st was World Backup Day. So yet another reason for you to plan to do your backups. And you can find more backups at the World Backup Day site, which is appropriately enough, worldbackupday.com. So now on to our topic for today. Today we are continuing the topic we were discussing on the January 29th show earlier this year, 2019, titled, Will You Sacrifice Your Privacy When Purchasing Cannabis? We had been discussing real-life situations for how cannabis, that would be medical cannabis and adult use, also often called recreational cannabis was typically sold within the dispensaries. The specific types of personal information items involved in the associated sales transactions. And and if you listen to that, it was well over 30 different types of personal information items. And then if it was for minors, for children, double that amount of personal information because their legal guardians need to provide not only the personal information of the children who need that for medical care, but also the guardians must also provide their own personal information. Now, in the short two months since that show, a lot of changes in the legalized cannabis industry have occurred. And I want to give you just a few examples because I found it really interesting how much is going on out there. So on March 14th, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed a law known as the Utility Bill because it's supported by various factions of the cannabis industry. On March 18th, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed legislation repealing the state's ban on smoking medical marijuana. Now, what's interesting about this law is it sets guidelines for inventory testing and tracking and advertising, packaging, labeling, among other things. But it also allows employers to fire medical marijuana users in certain quote, safety-sensitive jobs, unquote, who test positive for the drug. And some of those include uh, professions such as firefighters and workers who carry firearms, who drive vehicles, or who operate heavy machinery. Now, in the United States, in the 2018 Farm Bill, the federal government removed hemp from the list of controlled substances and now Texas is complying with that by also doing the same in their state. So hemp will no longer be considered a controlled substance under laws that go into effect in Texas. And in fact, also in Texas, there's the Texas Compassionate Use Act, which already allows people with intractable epilepsy to legally use medical cannabis oil 
if they meet certain qualifications. Consider this, 25% of the U.S. population now live in regions where adult recreational use of marijuana is legal, and that number is undoubtedly going to grow. As of March 29th, 2019, so here just a few days ago, there were 975 cannabis-related bills moving through the U.S. state legislatures and also the federal Congress for the 2019 sessions. And it's not just in the U.S. Numerous countries in Europe have also legalized medical cannabis to some degree. So here's just a few examples for all of my friends over in Europe and others who are interested in knowing about this too. The U.K. and Austria are currently the largest European cannabis oil or CBD markets. The German medical cannabis market is expected to reach $2.7 billion by 2023, overtaking the markets in the UK and Austria. The fastest growing European medical cannabis markets are expected to be in the UK and in France. Portugal is emerging as a top medical cannabis distribution hub. The Netherlands legal marijuana market is is pretty small right now, but it's projected to top one billion dollars by 2023. Spain is experimenting with legal recreational um, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana and the use of recreational cannabis, has been decriminalized and is allowed in the Czech Republic, Catalonia, Basque, and Navarra. And up to our north, our friends to the north of the U.S., marijuana is legal in Canada. And I could keep going. There are huge amounts of personal and sensitive data involved with all of these transactions that go on. How secure are those transactions? What needs to be done to better protect the data that cannabis dispensaries collect and store and share with others? What needs to be done to better protect the privacy of dispensary patients and customers? Today, I'm really so excited to welcome back an inspiring, thought-provoking, and what I think is probably the most knowledgeable, I'm so excited I can't get my words out, the most knowledgeable person there is when it comes to security and privacy of marijuana stores and also medical cannabis dispensary stores, Michelle Dumay. Michelle is the mother of a terminally ill child born with a rare brain abnormality that required removal of nearly half of her brain at birth and experience as her daughter's caregiver and medical advocate for almost 2,000 appointments has allowed Michelle to serve on patient advisory councils for two children's hospitals and also for an insurer. Now, Michelle is a trained chemist and Michelle first turned to conventional pharma for treatment of her daughter's seizures. She then tried medicinal 
cannabis to mitigate her seizures. And after some success, Michelle wanted to petition her insurance companies for copayment. Although the U.S. federal prohibition is a huge issue, Michelle learned many medical cannabis dispensaries are not HIPAA compliant and as such cannot partner with insurance companies to serve cannabis patients. So working to solve her own problem and the looming problem of millions of cannabis using patients, Michelle entered the world of cannabis governance, risk and compliance. I started a really interesting discussion about cannabis dispensary security and privacy two months ago in my January 29th show with Michelle. And if you didn't listen, I recommend you do so after listening to today's show, because today we are continuing our discussion from that show. Michelle, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Oh, Rebecca, it's it's a pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Oh, well, it's, I'm so excited to uh, be speaking with you and continuing this conversation. You know, in January, uh, during that show, we started discussing the differences between adult use or recreational cannabis dispensaries and medical cannabis dispensaries. I think it would be good to provide our listeners with a lay of the land, if you will. Do you know around how many standalone um, adult use dispensaries there are, like in U.S.? or Canada or other places? So, as you alluded to at the beginning of the show, constantly the cannabis ecosystem is evolving. And so it's kind of hard to give a, a hard number as to what each state has of, uh, or each country has of each particular type of dispensary. But mm-hmm. I can sort of give you a, a really nice ballpark to say that in, in the U.S., Probably at this time, there are somewhere between 5,500 and maybe 6,000 um, dispensaries. And most of those dispensaries are in medical, um, medical use states, right? So we only have mm. 10 states that have uh, adult use and a medical use um, law. So mm. most of those dispensaries are medical use. And then in those, some of those states that have both adult use and medical use, we do find some dispensaries that from the same location dispense um, product for a patient as well as product for an adult consumer. But the numbers are really, really hard because a dispensary could make an application or could have been a medical um, dispenser initially, uh, recreational, uh, sorry, adult use um, laws become... Uh, uh, finalized, and then that same dispenser can apply for an adult use permit and then begin after they go through the state's process to become an adult dispenser. So it becomes very hard to nail down to say that there are 15 or 6 or 2 in that way. And it's probably not even documented then anywhere, right? I mean, you would think that's such a... Correct. Yeah, it's so highly regulated. It seems like that information would be made public somewhere, but I guess it's not, huh? I I think it's I think it is made public, but because it's constantly changing and evolving. Mm. What I say, for example, today, um, I know that Georgia is working on a law, and then it's possible by the time the program airs, even next week, that that system will be in place and then people can begin to immediately apply like we saw in Oklahoma within I believe Mm -hmm. the first few uh, weeks in Oklahoma there was something like 
uh, 800 applications and approvals to a a few hundred to a lesser degree. So it's a very very fast-moving target. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's true. That makes a lot of sense, especially, you know, with all those changes that I listed at the beginning of the show that's going on. It it makes sense that that numbers just keep going to fluctuate and probably just keep getting larger and larger. Um, How about online? I mean, do you have any feel for, uh, you know, how many online sites are available where you can actually order or purchase cannabis? So, so in, in general, um, across most states, persons are unable to complete an online transaction, meaning mm-hmm. we don't have the, we don't have the, um, all of the laws in place for the banking to allow for a true sort of seamless, I go online like Amazon, I make a purchase, you run my credit card, it's, you know, it's uh, debited. And then I receive my product in Amazon, you know, same day or, or next day. So in general, most systems don't work like that. But what in fact happens is um, there's a workaround in which perhaps a delivery system uh, is, is deployed and the payment is made to the, the order is, is processed online, but the payment is made in person to a person that is delivering. Or perhaps the patient or the consumer places the order uh, online and then goes into a dispensary or the retail location, as they're called in, in California, and they complete the transaction in person. So at this time, because of the, the banking situation in general, we find that most persons are not able to make the to do the entire transaction online. And that makes you know sense from what you told me back in January too about all of that personal information that's required. I know. Uh, a lot of times when people think about ordering things online, they think about, oh, well, I'll just order it. Nobody will know I'm getting it. But that's just not the way it currently works, at least not in the United States then, right? Correct. Not in the United States. Um, you know, maybe if we have a few moments uh, in Canada, it, it can be a very different situation. Oh, I <laughs> bet. So then you can initiate your order online in the U.S. for some places and then um, go to whatever is the registered or um, local um, dispensary and pick it, pick up your order and pay for it there. So Correct. that's that's we're at the current time. So what kind of um, if you we're coming up in about three minutes to a break, but I thought this would be give us enough time where maybe you could remind us of that pers- types of personal data that. Uh, the dispensaries typically collect or possess? Sure. So let's go on the short end of the spectrum and let's look at a state that has adult use and medical use like Oregon. In Oregon, if I were to go into, as an adult consumer, um, I would go into the dispensary. They would uh, ask for proof of identity that I am above 2021. They take my name um, the uh, the actual piece of ID itself, and they have a system in which they would basically hold that information. So mm-hmm. they're holding it until I 
complete my transaction. So I'm going to the store, I'm picking my product. I've decided, okay, this is all that I'd like to select for my purchase today. And upon uh, making my payment, then again, they verify that I am the person, this is my ID, and then that information is removed from the system. So that's the, it's there only to, only to verify it's not held um, and the transaction is complete. On the other end of the spectrum, we have states that um, mandated things such as in Ohio where patients are giving about 22 or more pieces of data about the patient or the caregiver or in some um, instances both. And that includes things like the dispensary holding for the entire time and then storing the patient's name, their full name, their address, the telephone number, their date of birth, the recommendation date, um, the number of the refill, the, the, the date that the medical cannabis was being dispensed. They're holding the order number, the serial number of each dispensed product. They're holding the cannabis product identifier, which is a number as well the date that the recommendation was issued, they're holding payment information, they're holding the name of the product as well. Uh, oh, wow. And then, in a, oh, there's one more. And then at the conclusion <laughs> of the transaction, uh, my picture is taken and saved into the system as well. Yes. And all of that information also uh, is... I think most of that, excuse me, most of that information is also printed on the exit material that is attached to the medicine. Oh, wow. You know, it's, so if we, you, have to, we, we have to take a quick break here. I'm sorry to cut ahead. you off, but I want to start from there because that is yeah. so much personal data. So right now it's yeah. time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. I'm speaking today with Michelle Dumay, Cannabis Industry Privacy and Security Advocate and Consultant. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as anything else using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, 
breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Simbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Simbus system. Visit Simbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Michelle Dumay, Cannabis Industry Privacy and Security Advocate, Advisor, and I think one of the, the best experts, because uh, she's I always find and learn so much from her about all these things. So, um, Michelle, before we went to break, you were talking about how before you leave the store, uh, you'd listed a lot of the personal information items, and you said that you know the, one of the last things is taking your photo before you leave. Um, and I had to cut you off there. Was there anything else you wanted to add about that process of all that information that they're collecting before you leave the store with your purchase? Sure, that it's it's entirely burdensome uh, because what not only are they collecting that information, but um, in some jurisdictions, they are requiring that much of that information be physically printed and then attached to mm. the medicine. So oh, I'm, wow. I'm exiting, I'm exiting the, the dispensary. And let us suppose for some reason I've, un, I've now opened my secured exit um, packaging, which is a locked, a locked type of um, packaging, a childproof package, right, that holds all mm-hmm. of my medicines. And I've gone to my car and something happens and the sticker, and I didn't see the sticker falls off. Well, now oh. all of this data about myself, my child, uh, is, you know, is out in, in the wild and is able to be used to harm me or my child. So, but this is the stipulation that the statutes that states in some jurisdictions are placing on dispensers, and they're not quite understanding the impact Oh, my gosh. So not only is all of this information digitized and kept somewhere, but I'm just trying to figure out what the thinking is, what the logic is behind then making a hard copy, a physical copy like this to, to give to the person that purchased it to take with them. I mean, it just is there a reason why they decided that would be a good idea to add to the risk of all that data to put it in a physical form that others might might be able to take? I can sum it up in one sentence. It's 
old thinking related to stigma. Mm. Wow. And it, old thinking related to stigma. We don't require this when I go to, to a CVS. You don't have all that information on, on, on my daughter's uh, pharma meds. But yeah. you, you've, made, you've made this long, arduous process that she's had to go through to even get the permission to go into the dispensary. And then on top of that, you've mandated that all of this data is present for her. So I, I, think, mm-hmm. I think that thinking is sort of related to stigma. Oh, my gosh. Well, and then think about all that data. Think about the people that actually um, work in the dispensaries or work in the industry. You know, it's interesting. I read a, a news report, and I'm not sure how how um, up-to-date their stats are, but it, it stated that around 90% of financial and product loss in the marijuana industry is due to employee theft, according to what they stated were security experts that work with it. And they also said that 10% of product loss is from external theft. And I read that and I thought, really? 90%? And then I think of all of this data. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? So I I think the the first thing is context. I've seen one of those reports, and it was dated maybe four or five years ago. So you think four or five years ago, in many most jurisdictions, these cannabis dispensing programs were toddlers. They were only mm-hmm. uh, four or five years old. We were, we were getting our rhythm as to how we were going to permit access to patients. We were, we were thinking through a lot of... Um, policies and procedures, but we but we were thinking those things through from through the lens of stigma and mm-hmm. trying to protect and trying to have access. So we had a lot of we had a lot of things that we hadn't done right. We hadn't established security um, uh, uh, standards. We hadn't established uh, information standards. So now that we're a little bit older, so now the industry in many jurisdictions are preteens and some are teenagers, right? So we understand <laughs> that there. We understand then that we can treat the industry differently when we were when we talk with children. We speak to them differently and we guide them differently than we do preteens. So we see, you know, sort of an analogy, but we try to allow the information and the handling and the access to evolve. And we move mm-hmm. beyond the stigma, and we we begin to act, to legislate differently. But you know, <clears throat> Rebecca, it really begs to, to to this one point: when we mm-hmm. are trying to have a very regulated industry, really at this point in the preteen years of 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 most of the industry, really what that the slippage or the the gray market is actually what is more um, detrimental than the amount of product that is being uh, stolen from uh, from dispensaries. So uh, uh, just a very easy example that our listeners mm-hmm. can do, especially our Canadian listeners, if they simply Google cannabis wholesale, uh, wholesale cannabis Canada, then they mm-hmm. will see pages upon pages of, of, um, of research of uh, results that will that are uh, companies that are selling cannabis online, and yeah. many of the 
And many of these retailers are in the gray market. So how do we know they're in the gray market? It's very simple. If you go onto the website and it says that they have edibles or they have mm-hmm. topicals, it's an, and, and the big one is that they're missing the ACMPR, which is, that's, that's Canada's Cannabis Act, right? Mm-hmm. If they're missing that licensure, that number, then you know that they're an illegal operation. If they're selling edibles or topicals, we also know that they're an illegal market, uh, Ill- illegal retailer. Why? Because Canada does not have the standards set yet for edibles and topicals. That's really? coming. So how, if you are a legal entity, are you selling an illegal product? So the answer is you are not a legal entity, but you are selling an illegal product. And that really, that gray area, that's a huge market. And that's where a lot of uh, loss is happening, if you can say, uh, in, in, the, in the regulated markets. It's that gray market. Well, and then and for us as Americans, about- we have no concept because we're uh. so used to the highly, highly regulated system. We would never dream of reselling or retailing an illegal product. But again, if your listeners are able to have them do that search, that's what they will come up with. Those two data points will be there. Well, then, talking about all of that loss, and especially in what you're calling yeah. the gray area, and when you say gray area for our listeners, is that kind of, you're referencing the gray area as an, um, selling it in a way that may or may not be legal, and those who are customers or purchasers, they have a hard time recognizing that, So, and maybe Correct. even the sellers have a hard time recognizing that? Correct, because in parts of Canada, especially in the western province of of British Columbia, there was a long history of cannabis sales before there was the regulated uh, permission of cannabis sales. So when Uh I see the gray market, I'm referring to retailers that are selling cannabis is legal, so that part they're fine with. But it's illegal to sell an edible. But you uh-huh. see them selling edibles. So this is why it's a gray market. They're legally selling, but it's a product that's not regulated. It's a legal product, but it's not, um, they're not following the mandates of, uh, of, of the Cannabis Act that was passed. Mm. Okay. And then when you said that you think a lot of the losses are in that gray area, does that include sure. loss of like personal data? Um, in any form or, um, you know, what do you see as being the, the, th- the risk then for all of this data that insiders present to what they've collected, especially in that gray area? I mean, are they just being, um, you know, lax or they don't know how to secure it so they do things that put it at risk or they purposely sell it to people or what are you seeing? When I first started trying to research this, I have friends in Canada and I asked them these questions. And, and in general, the consensus was that the, the data and the privacy are at risk when um, persons are buying from these, let's call them um, non-regulated entities for a couple of reasons. One, because if you're not regulated, then you're not following the rules of securing data using encryption, um, you know, a, a double authentic, uh, uh, author, uh, a double 
authentication system. You're maybe not using mm-hmm. biometrics. You're not locking a safe um, with and sort of coordinating off what product can be accessed by which employee. So you have this incredible amount of, of lax uh, uh, framework in which you're working. So, yes, it's totally possible that your data is unprotected, but we did not find other numbers of or large numbers of patient information being sold. Uh, we didn't find instances of um, sort of just rampant loss of patient information or adult information, but it can happen because people are not following what would be good practices to protect that information. Yeah. Well, certainly they wouldn't be tracking it then, right? If they aren't applying. So if they aren't tracking it, how do they know? (laughs) I mean, uh, they might. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, that's something for our listeners to think about, too, if they're they're making their purchases through these unregulated or gray area providers. um, It's likely that they don't have security around their personal data. So not only are you taking a risk perhaps with the quality of the product that you're getting, but also you're taking a huge risk with who may be getting to your personal data and the possibility that no one would even know if somebody had used your personal data inappropriately because there's no tracking and no security controls in place. And Rebecca, imagine this also. That's what they're doing now, but if they should see a decrease in their own sales, why wouldn't they think to sell your information? Because your information has value. Oh, so just because we haven't you know, because we haven't heard it now, because we haven't seen it now, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen and we would not as you said, we wouldn't know because they're not regulated. So we can't we don't have the ability to go into them, ask them, you know, let's do an audit. And, you know, let's see how you're protecting information. So, Well, so we have those, the ones that aren't regulated. And then we yep. have the areas that are becoming increasingly more regulated. So kind of yep. moving over to those, what are some of the biggest information security and privacy risks that you've seen or heard about within those cannabis dispensaries that are regulated? So at a 30,000-foot view, I would say things like, um, first of all, that personal information and PHI, you know, protected health information, could be lost by not using secure emails or secure SMS platforms. Those mm-hmm. are two that really come to mind. And moreover, um, it's quite actually a quite a really simple privacy hole to plug, but it'd be the use of review platforms. So a a patient and adult um, consumer goes into a dispensary, has a very good experience, then they go on to a review site, a a Google Reviews, a Yelp, uh, you know, whatever. They've had their account set up. And, of course, when you leave the review, if you didn't have a moniker or a nickname and you signed up with your real name, and you leave the review, it posts your picture, it posts your name, it posts your review. I never even thought about that. Oh, my gosh, that's such a good point. Right, and so that's just, you know, that's a a simple hole to plug, but it's a huge hole because most of us are now so active in our social lives, 
that are online mm-hmm. that when we leave a review, we don't even think about the fact, well, I set this account up five years ago. I used my real name. I used a picture. I didn't take a picture of my dog or a flower and put that as my picture. I used my picture. And so now we have, and again, let's, you know, let's keep context. 33 states are medical use states. So the only mm-hmm. person going into a medical dispensary are patients. And if a patient is saying, I had this fabulous experience, and I leave the review, it's my information. That's a huge security hole. Oh, my gosh. Well, and related to that, just think about the people who make their apps automatically post about where they have been. Um, yes. And, you know, a lot of times that also puts right out there on Facebook or Instagram or wherever the fact yes. that you were at a medical cannabis dispensary. Um, Absolutely. Well, and just like at the beginning of the show, I talked about how the governor of Florida made it legal to smoke um, medical cannabis in mm-hmm. public, but also gave employers the ability to fire those who were using it. Um, I would imagine a lot of employers would be interested in knowing that in other states or in other situations, too, who might not be so um, well-versed, perhaps, in what uh, what the benefits are of medical cannabis to those who are actually using it. And, you know, Rebecca, I don't know the particular wording of that statute, but on its face, it's a horrible portion to make into law because cannabis, mm-hmm. unlike other um, drugs, has the ability to be in the system for months. Mm. My daughter can use her cannabis uh, in February, and it's possible that when she's tested for something in March, that that metabolite is still present. But it does not mean she's under the effect of the metabolite. It means the metabolite is present. So having laws in this way but not really taking into account the science are just mm. they're, not, they're not good laws. And, and unfortunately, I haven't seen the wording of that particular part, but at the 30,000-foot view, it's very, very problematic for patients. Um, so many patients consume their cannabis off hours away from work at night, and they have uh, some sort of pain they're trying to mitigate, and then in the morning... They, they've because they consumed it the night before, it's still in their system, but they're mm-hmm. not having the same effect or they're not, you know, they're not inebriated, they're not, um, they're just out of pain because that was the effect right. that they were medicating for. But yet, if you go to test them, you're going to find the presence of the metabolite. Mm-hmm. But it was put into the system 24, 28, 5 days, 15 days ago. This is very, very troubling for patients. Yes. Well, and, and plus medical cannabis, and you explain this in the the January show. So, I, you know, I encourage everyone to listen to that show to hear it. But I think you made the point then the fact that medical cannabis is not the same as um, just, you know, regular cannabis or recreational or adult use, because didn't you say it has a certain um certain parts of it removed because you just want the medicinal, it only has the medicinal um, parts that are left in there. It's not like the, the part that's the drug that gets you high or whatever. So there, there are forms of the cannabis that have uh, components that have no inebriation to it. 
So right. generally, we, we see patients and, and consumers using a product that has THC in it, which can have to some, you know, some degree the effect of inebriation. But in even small amounts, there is no effect of inebriation. You don't feel drunk or high, but rather you feel relief from the pain. Then there are some components of, uh, of, of cannabis that we hear very popular in the news called CBD. And those have wholly, holistically, no inebriating uh, effect, but they have a medicating effect. And then sometimes patients use the two in, in, in conjunction to mitigate a pain, but then to have an overall general, um, to promote general health, right? So, so you find patients in a very compromised position with this type of law um, uh, across the board, unfortunately. Yes, especially if a law says that if you're taking med- medical cannabis, which you're doing so that you feel better and you kill the pain and actually can probably calm your nerves and make you steadier, giving the employers, I see now your concern that you are saying about needing to read what that law actually says, because it, from what you described, it almost seems like that law was um, created without fully understanding what the actual uh, effects are of taking a drug for medicinal purposes. So that very part of the law, I believe, finds its root again in stigma. Yes. Uh, well, well, that that could be a whole other topic. But I want to get back to <laughs> to some of the uh, security and privacy stuff here. So I wondered if you might have some thoughts about, like, in December there was a Florida medical cannabis dispensary. So you were talking about how some um, sites make their ordering available on their website. And it sounds like they weren't actually taking payments for it. But then this Florida medical cannabis dispensary, they took their website offline after they found that their patient information was obtainable through the site's just basic search function. That sounds like a huge security oversight. Do you think that's a a vulnerability that's, you know, in many other places? Because I've not seen a lot of guidance to them for data security online. Right. I, right. I think this is an operator error. Um, uh, I think that this was the mistake of the, of the dispensing organization as a whole. Uh, most dispensing organizations have a separation between their internal computer systems and their external or their website. So in general, they don't have dispensers are not making that connection because they don't in general have the ability to mm. um, to make the purchase online. So I think it was really an, uh, an, an operator mm. error and a lack of knowledge about HIPAA, which would be very clear to say that these systems should not be connected so that they cannot be accessed but from the general public, from the public side. Right. Well, believe it or not, when I speak with you, our time goes by so quickly, and we're already here at the end of um, the hour almost. But as the last question to do uh, that I want to provide today, what is the key point that you would like for our listeners to take away today about cannabis dispensaries and the associated security or privacy um, issues? Uh, What do you want people to leave today to think about? Just on a very, very basic level that in, in truth, most 
In truth, cannabis patients and consumers are like any other consumer or patient. They want protections of their privacy. They want their information to be protected, just like any other consumer or patient. And that, you know, we do have to kind of move beyond the the limitation of stigma that I think that as long as we have this stigma uh, or prohibition clouds, the clouds are thinking, then we're not going to really embrace the fact that one data and privacy compliance transformation is coming to the cannabis ecosystem. And this absolutely includes HIPAA compliance, right? And I think the yes. third thing is third thing is that cannabis patients, consumers, and regulators are going to demand it. As we get older, we get more mature, we, we, understand, we understand more things. And that, therefore, data and privacy compliance is really just going to help build the best operations, and being out of compliance is going to break every operation. Those are excellent points. Thank you so uh, so much for being with me today, Michelle, and talking about this very important issue. You're very welcome. Thank you again, Rebecca. So today I've been speaking with Michelle Dumais, who works with so many uh, cannabis dispensaries and provides so much great information about security and privacy. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Did you find the information that we provided helpful? Let me know. And if you have a topic to suggest, uh, let me know that too, just by sending it to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Please tune into the show each week. And if you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to all of the past recordings at any time you want. You can find recordings of all my past shows on all those different app providers that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, in addition to on the voiceamerica.com business channel website. Also, contact me if you need help with information security, privacy, compliance keynotes, or being an expert witness. I urge you all to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it is secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show. Ask those you do business with, and this includes your cannabis dispensaries if you're using them, and ask those who you work for if they are all doing all that they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.